welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For March, we are reading Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen, and for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, Patty Callahan Henry returns to chat with me about the secret book of Flora Lee. Patty is the New York Times, USA Today, and Globe and Mail bestselling author of 16 novels. She is the co-host and co-creator of the popular weekly online Friends in Fiction live web series and podcast. Patty is also a contributor to the monthly Life Lesson essay column for Parade Magazine. A full-time author and mother of three, she lives in Mountain Brook, Alabama, and Bluffton, South Carolina with her family. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Patty. How are you today? Hi, Cindy. I am thrilled to be here, and I love talking with you about books and stories. I feel the same way, and I'm thrilled to pieces that you're back, because as always, I love your books, and I cannot wait to learn more about how The Secret Book of Flora Lee came about. Oh, you want to know the origin of this story? I do, but before we dive into that, will you give me a really quick synopsis of the book for those that won't have read it yet? Absolutely. So the book is set in a dual time period of 1939 and 1960, but we open in 1939 in Bloomsbury, England. And this is during the time that the edict came down from the government for all children to be sent to the countryside for the impending and possible bombs from the Germans. This is during World War II. Well, we meet Hazel, who is 15 years old, her little sister, Flora Lee, who is five years old, and they live in Bloomsbury, London. They are two of 800,000 children who are shipped off within four days' time on trains. They are sent off with a satchel or a knapsack full of clothes, a name tag around their neck that tells who they are and where they came from, a gas mask, and a postcard to send to their parents to let them know where they have gone. Well, Hazel and Flora Lee are sent off, but they are one of two of the lucky ones. They are chosen by an amazing family in this small hamlet called Binzi, 
which is a very real place, right outside Oxford, England, in the countryside of Oxfordshire. To survive the loneliness and missing their family, Hazel, the older sister, makes up a fairy tale world for the younger sister, Flora Lee. The fairy tale world is called Whisperwood. They go there together at night when they're playing in the woodlands inside a riven tree. In Whisperwood, they can be anything they please, a fox, a squirrel, an owl, and they are safe. Well, a year goes by in this storied little hamlet of Binsey, right on the, along the River Thames, when the unthinkable happens in 1940. Flora Lee disappears. Hazel blames herself. She believes her little sister has gone to look for Whisperwood. Then now we are in 1960. 20 years have passed. Flora Lee has not been found. Hazel is working in an antiquarian bookshop. When a package comes through the back door, it's wrapped in parchment. She opens it. She unties the red ribbon. And inside are original illustrations for a fairy tale book written by an American author called Whisperwood. I am dying to know how you came up with this idea or these ideas, really. This story, you know, I've been doing this little series on my Instagram every Friday until publication called Where Do Stories Come From? And I find the idea fascinating because I'm always scared I'm not going to get another one that the universe will not send this bubbling up of, of an interesting story for me again. And I think it is interesting to look at where our stories come from. And this one, I can definitely label the first seed. There are many seeds in this story. But the first one came when I was working on um, Once Upon a Wardrobe. And in that novel, I fictionalize and show the seven events in C.S. Lewis's life that you can see, speaking of seeds, inside The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And one of them is, of course, when the children were sent to the countryside, which is how The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe opens. These children, Peter, Susie, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, have been sent to the professor's house. And when I was doing my research for that scene in that chapter, I discovered that the name of the operation that sent these children away was called Operation Pied Piper. Now, if you know me at all, I'm obsessed with mythology and legends and folk tales and fairy tales. And I knew that the legend of the Pied Piper wasn't a good one. Not only is it a German legend, and this is World War II, but the legend is about a piper who plays a flute and lures the children away from their town, and they disappear forever. And I, it, it made me sit back and say, why would the British government name an operation or scheme to protect children after a German legend of lost children? And the story rose up from there, and I wanted I wanted to take a different angle than maybe some other novels about this time period or even this operation would have taken because we're talking about a legend or a tale or a folk tale of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. And I wanted this story to be infused with stories and fairy tales and legends. And also I wanted it to be told from the children's point of view. We know the agony of a mother having to make that decision to send away her children. 
we have seen the point of view of adults during the blitz and during the war and how they protect their families. But what about the kids? So the the legend of the Pied Piper and fairy tales and wanting to come at this from a children's angle were the two seeds that started to entwine into this novel. The person who named the operation clearly was not very familiar with the Pied Piper story. And I know, and I wish I could find out. I mean, obviously, this is World War II. This is 1938, 39. Whoever named this operation isn't here to tell us. But I would love to find someone within the government who could tell me why they would have chosen that name above all the other names they could have chosen. Yes, definitely. That would be so interesting to know how it came about and then whether they realized later, hmm, maybe this wasn't the best name. I know. wasn't a great idea. And and not much is written about, and that's the thing with the children. They're focusing, obviously, on the children because they're using a, uh, like a nursery rhyme of the Pied Piper without understanding its ramifications. But I hadn't seen any of that from their point of view. That makes sense. Well, what about the idea for Whisperwood? I love fairy tales, as you can tell from some of my other novels. And I believe in the power of fairy tales and legends and myths to tell these deeper truths and to speak to our subconscious. And when I knew that this was about the Pied Piper, I had this imagining of two little sisters And a fairy tale being what kind of supported and held them up during this rough time, because we all know, and you do too, or you don't, wouldn't care about books as much as you do, that stories are the things that can sustain us during really bad times. And I wanted that to be part of their, their journey or their odyssey. And so I started to make up this fairy tale world that they could visit in their imaginations. I didn't want the magical realism where they actually go to Whisperwood or enter a portal. I wanted it to be obvious that they were using their imaginations to create a world that only belonged to the two of them. And then I thought, what if the thing that sustains them also causes a tragedy or causes something bad to happen when it was meant only for good. And that's, it just, you know, layer after layer, the Whisperwood started to appear. Was it fun to create it yourself? Did you enjoy doing that aspect of the story? Oh my goodness. I, hot dog, I loved it. (laughs) I just thought it, it was so much fun to, there are whole scenes I, I wrote about Whisperwood that I needed to go because they weren't relevant, but, or even imagined, but the idea of creating a place where two sisters could go to feel safe and to ask myself as I sat down, what would that look like? Right? So if you wrote a fairy tale world where you and your sister felt safe, it might be very different than, than Whisperwood. For me, it was the woodlands. It was creatures who could talk to them, owls and chipmunks and a fox. It was this idea of a castle far off that they were always trying to reach and finding the queen who had wisdom. I I pulled from all these fairy tales I love or legends I love 
and just created this insular, fantastical world for just the two of them. Now, as the reader, we don't go to Whisperwood very much. We get to see glimpses. But what we do understand is how much it matters to them and how important it is to them. That was one of my questions for you. As you were writing, did you really have to think through how much of Whisperwood you wanted to include in the book versus just allude to it and know that the sisters have created this entire world in their head? I did, Cindy. That's such a good question because I went back and forth about creating a book inside a book. And as as I alluded to in the setup and is in chapter one, Hazel, 20 years later, finds that an American author has written this fairy tale in book form. It differs slightly from the one she made up 20 years before, but not dramatically. It is obvious that it is the same setup. Two sisters, a land called Whisperwood with a river of stars. And yes, I thought, well, maybe we want to see this book inside this book and let it show us what they developed and wrote. But in the end, when you sit down and ask yourself, or when your editor asks you to keep the story moving, those would have been places to rest, but they wouldn't have been places that moved the plot forward. Because we all we need to know is that get glimpses of why this place mattered to them but it didn't have much. What happened inside Whisperwood doesn't help solve the mystery of what happened to Flora Lee. So that the book exists, that the sisters had it as a secret, that the older sister Hazel turned away from it and stopped writing stories or even believing in stories, even as she worked in a bookshop. You needed to know that you didn't, you didn't, you needed to know the plot of Whisperwood and what it involved, but you didn't need to read it to move the story forward. I agree with that. And books within books are all the rage right now. And so it seems like that is kind of a very popular thing that authors are writing. But in this case, I think that it's nice for the reader to be able to envision her own Whisperwood. You've given some parameters, you talk about some of the things that happen. But I think it makes it a little more creative and fun for the reader to have her own or his own imaginings of what Whisperwood is like. And, and I wanted that too, because I, like I just said to you, if you imagined Whisperwood, it might be different than mine. You know, any child's imagination or adult's imagination for that mo- moment is, is something so personal. And if you're going to imagine the world where you can be anything you want, where you are always safe, where you can encounter a wise being who can answer your questions, that might look different for you than for me. And I don't want, I didn't want to impose that magical world with rules and laws. And I didn't want to create that in a way that took you out of the story that mattered to me, which is what happened to Flora Lee? What happened? How does this fairy tale still exist even though she has disappeared? And I want that to be what drives you forward. I agree with that completely. Did you always know how the story was going to end? Are you a plotter or a pantser? I should remember that, but I don't. Ah, well, I've changed through time, Cindy. And I I was listening to a lecture by Neil Gaiman once. You know, he writes true blue fantasy, right? He he would take Whisperwood to the next level, I'm quite sure. And he describes it as 
architect or gardener. And I really like that, which is the same as plotting or pantsing, which is essentially asking, do you super plan out a story or do you organically let it grow? And I do both. I used to be 100% a pantser gardener. But as I started writing historical fiction, much more planning needed to be done. And I also, much more of the architecture needs to be done. And I've discovered that (laughs) the truth is the pain comes at the beginning or the end, right? The pain meaning the organization, the outlining, the, the, the figuring out timelines. So as much as I can get done now on the front end, I do timelines what my character wants, why they can't get what they want, what they will do to get what they want. You know, all Hazel wants is to find out what happened to her sister. For 20 years, she has lived without knowing what happened to her sister. But I also leave plenty of room for surprise. So you ask about the ending. Here's what happened. I finished the novel. It'd gone through a few drafts, maybe four or five, you know, which is pretty usual for me because I'm a get the first draft down, just and then layer upon layer, fix it. And my, everybody was thrilled with it. My agent, the people at the agency, we were about to take it out to try and sell it. And I said, I'm just not that happy with the ending. And they were like, well, we are, it's perfect. You're just putting it off, right? Like, let's get this done. And I got sick that month. This was last January, so January of 22. And COVID finally found me. And I was kind of laid up for the month of January, watching a lot of of series on TV, which I usually don't do. And I watched Mayor of Easttown. Did you see that movie? I did, and we loved it. Oh, my gosh. I guess it's a series, not a movie. It's so good. And the twist, which you know, and I won't give away for anybody who hasn't watched it, the twist in the last episode, you're, it kind of takes your breath away. But at the same time, you realize you should have seen it coming. And I wanted that, right? Like, I wanted that. So I told them to hold off, and I just spent a, almost a month thinking about it, dwelling on it turning it around in my head, cleaning up the other pages. When I saw inside the story that there was a different ending and it had been waiting for me. So the ending you read is that one. I wondered, because in a story like this, it must be one of the things you do have to just cogitate about, turn it over a bunch, try to figure out, okay, how is it going to end? Exactly. So, you know, I can sit down and be an architect or a plotter and map everything out. And that might make me feel safer. That might make me feel better about where we're going. But in the end, does it, does it surprise and enchant the reader in the way in which I would like? Maybe, but I have to also be open so I can give myself that safety net. This is how I'm planning to end it. This is where I see it going. And I can give myself that safety net, but also be willing to let it become something else. I like that. Well, what surprised you the most when you were writing The Secret Book of Flora Lee? Mm. I think what surprised me was the amount of children sent away. I was shocked. Millions of children were sent away from their families. It was such a colossal act of organization. We can barely 
comprehend it. From the knapsacks to the gas masks to the name tags to the families who agreed to billet, which is what they called housing these children. So these children would all be sent off together. They would get on a train, not knowing where they were going at all, north, south, east, west. The parents would just stand at the platform and say goodbye and hope for a postcard in the next couple of days to discover where their children had gone. And I just was so stunned by that simple fact. And as I read the books about it and read interviews from children who had been sent away, and I met a 92-year-old woman who had been sent away with her brother, and I interviewed her about it. I was very surprised at not only the wide range of children's experiences, but how little of those stories had been told. I think it is absolutely incomprehensible to think of something like that happening. I know it did happen, but to be on either side of it, as a child to have been sent away like that or to have my children sent away like that, I just, I can't even fathom it. And that's the first thing I thought, Cindy. I was like, I'm the mother of three children and now two grandchildren. And my thoughts were, I couldn't have done it. But then again, I didn't live in 1939 England where Every post, if you go on my website in the next couple of weeks after the book comes out, we'll have a book club kit and I'll have pictures of the posters that were all over England that said, send your children away. It's a, you know, it's a national patriotic thing to do to keep them safe. And I don't know what we would have done in that situation. And there were parents who didn't send their kids away and there are parents who took them and went somewhere else. But like I said, millions were sent. And I think for those kids that were sent, if you had a really good situation, it probably went pretty well and maybe wasn't as upsetting. But if you were in a bad situation, it would just seem like that would be something that would be difficult to ever recover from. And there have been a lot of studies since in the last few years, there have been some studies about the impact on the children. And it is widely agreed that psychologically, this was an absolutely horrific thing to do, to separate children from their parents during a war, to exile them from home and comfort during a precarious time. And, and sometimes it didn't work. A bomb would drop where the children had been sent for safety while their own home was safe. Like the, it didn't, you know, there's the story in Hazel Gaynor's new book, The Last Lifeboat. Those were children sent on a ship to Canada that was torpedoed by a German U-boat and 70 something children were killed. Children who were being sent away to be safe. But it goes back again and again, when we look at history or ourselves or our families, like, I think we have to say over and over again, unless they're evil, like Hitler, like they did the best they knew how to do in the time with what they understood. And the government did what they thought was best with the information they had. We didn't, they didn't know about the child psychology the way we do now. It just seemed the prudent thing to do. Absolutely. And I'm actually in the middle of Hazel's book right now. So I'm glad you mentioned it, The Last Lifeboat. It's really interesting. And I had read Laura Spence Ash's book, Beyond That the Sea, where the woman B was sent over to the U.S. And she and I had talked in our interview about how the ship that 
that Hazel's writing about, once it was torpedoed, they stopped sending people across the Atlantic because obviously it wasn't safe. But I also think that people didn't know how long the war was going to last. And so they were thinking this is a very temporary measure. We'll send these kids out for three months, six months, they'll be back. But that didn't happen. Oh, absolutely. And there are stories of some of children who wept because they had to go home. These are children who lived maybe in you know, more slum type areas and have been living in the country and they don't want to go back. So it went both ways. Some children were happier and didn't want to return and some children longed for home. So it's a complicated, and I'm dying to read that the other book. Beyond That, The Sea. I I met her recently and I, I can't wait to read that book, but for now it shall wait for me. And then there's a fourth book out this season about Operation Pied Piper by Julia Kelly called The Lost English Girl. Um, but it is told from a mother's perspective. So somehow this uh, this operation or scheme seemed to bubble up in the universal unconscious and four of us grabbed at it. So all told from different perspectives. And that's so interesting to me when that happens. And there's a fifth book, Once We Were Home by Jennifer Rosner, which does not deal with Operation Pied Piper but deals with Jewish children being hid in other places, like in Poland with Catholic families or being hidden by the church. And then what happens when they're returned because they've been living as Christians and then you know, the Jewish people would like them back to raise them in the Jewish faith and how difficult it was for those kids. So definitely this concept of children being removed during the war and then what it was like to go back or what happens while they're removed is something that is very popular right now. Well, and I think I think what happens is we become concerned about things in our own culture, and we're watching it with Ukraine, Cuba, immigration, these children being separated and pulled from their families to, quote, save them, right? And so when we watch that, we, we, we want to understand, and one of the ways we understand is by looking backwards. It also made me think of COVID when you were talking about the impact on the children, because obviously COVID did not separate families, but it did have a lasting psychological impact on a lot of these kids who sat home for so long and didn't have socialization with their peers, weren't in school. So yes, I think there are numerous factors that drive us to look to what's happened in the past and what the results were. Yeah. And I met, like I mentioned earlier, I met this 92-year-old evacuee. They call themselves evacuees. And when I asked her about it, she's 92 and she could tell me everything about the day they were sent away, the different families she was shuffled between, the way they took her brother from her and separated them and put them in two different homes. The day her mother said enough and got in a car and came and got them and they all moved to Penzance together. But in talking to her, she could remember it all. And I asked her, I said, did you ever talk to your mom or your brother about those days? Like after you were all reunited, did you talk about it? Did you? She said, no, never. And I sat there as an American, you, you know, you can't imagine it. Like we just want to talk about our traumas. And, and she said, that's odd, isn't it? And I said, I don't know if it's odd, but it is. I mean, it is what it is. But they didn't talk about it again. They didn't all get back together and hash out what it felt like to be a child who lived with it. They just got on with it. They just got on with it. Well, I think part of that is generational because I do think that generation here in the United States as well was not a big talker about their feelings and what happened. But I also think as a mom, how difficult it would be to hear what had happened to your children. 
Like I, I think I would need to know and I would want to know, but it would be hard to ask those questions. hundred percent. I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, my kids are grown and out of the house and my oldest is a mother herself. And sometimes I'll hear them talking to each other about things that happened. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I didn't know that at the time, right? You know, there's <laughs> yeah. just this, there's this certain, there's, there's, there's such a visceral tie to our children that, that it almost is in many ways probably felt better generationally, like you said, too. You know, and their dad would come home from the war. They would come home from being exiled and they're a family again. And why dwell on it? Why talk about it? Let's, we're here, we're safe, we're together. Exactly. Look forward, don't look back. Yes. Well, how is Friends in Fiction going? Would you have ever dreamt when you all started this where it would be now? Cindy, like not even close. And I have a pretty good imagination. <laughs> we, Clearly. <laughs> we had no idea. Listen, if we had reverse engineered this thing, it probably wouldn't have worked. If we had said our goals are 140,000 members by three years, you know, but we approached it out of sheer fun out of a way to connect during a time when we couldn't connect with people and an earnest and true desire to help other authors, ourselves included, and indie bookstores and readers and librarians. Because the ways that we usually connect just fell apart. And we just wanted to have one little corner of the internet where readers and librarians and indies, we could all connect. And it has just become, I think it's the nicest corner on the internet. I think it is like the most fun book club ever. I think that the support and the kindness within our 140,000 member Facebook group is beyond anything we could have imagined. And we are now, three years later, going out live. We have five live events over the next five months which will be incredible. Once every calendar month, we will be the four of us with Ron and Meg together in a different city. And to see the Friends and Fiction community show up, we know they're not just showing up for us individually. They are showing up because they will see the people that they have connected with through this community. It's not just about us. But yes, it has been incredible. And think of the authors we have been privileged to interview from Kristen Hanna to Amor Tolls to Delia Owens to, I mean, our friends and, and new people. And I, I can't even, 160 shows. It's been incredible. It's so much fun to watch. And I love seeing all the posts on Facebook. And I always learn about new books that way. And isn't it fun? I do too. <laughs> I learn about new books that way too. So it's really astounding. And I love I love watching the posts. Um, it's hard to keep up with that Facebook page, but we do the best we can. You do quite well. Well, before we wrap up, Patty, speaking of new books, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, gosh, so much. But I'll tell you what I just finished since I'm looking at it on my desk and I get to interview her. And that is Kate Morton. I just held it up to the screen like you can see me. <laughs> Kate Morton's Kate book, Homecoming. <laughs> yes, yes. It it comes out today, but you as listeners, it will have already been out. It is called Homecoming, like you said, and it has, I'm a very big Kate Morton reader and I love her novels and it has been five years incoming. So it is very long. It is a dual timeline 
um, and goes back and forth between London and Australia, mostly Australia, which is where Kate Morton is from. And it opens with the mystery of a, a murdered family or a, and, and no, no clues whatsoever. It is not true crime or grisly or anything like that. It is the story of a young woman coming to terms with a past she didn't know. And it has a book within a book. It has a book within a book. And it has a missing little girl, a child, a baby who disappears, who we find out is not who we think it is. So there's, right, the similarities and the weirdness of the universal unconscious. And then, of course, I am so looking forward to all three of my cohorts. Novels, um, Kristen Harmel's The Paris Daughter is out June 6th. Christy Woodson Harvey's The Summer of Songbirds is out July 11th. And Mary Kay's Christmas novel, Bright Lights, Big City is out in September. And I can tell you, because I'm the luckiest and I get to read everything early, you are in for a huge treat with all of those. Oh, good. I didn't realize Mary Kay had a book coming out, but the other two were on my radar. Yeah, hers isn't until September, and it's a it's another Christmas book. So, Well, that's great. Well, Patty, as always, I love when you come on the show, and thanks for taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, Cindy, thank you so much for having me. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!